Good afternoon, everyone. Glad to see so many of you here, and we're really glad to be back. My wife and I just finished uh, one of the longest trips I've ever taken in my life. I've had a few that were longer, but we just were gone three weeks and five days and got back uh, day before yesterday evening from uh, China via Hawaii. And uh, as you know, we visited Los Angeles, New Zealand, Australia, the Philippines, and then China. So it was quite a trip. And I don't normally give the travelogue uh, for a sermon, and I'm not going to today either, but I'll be telling you some about the trip as well as scriptures along the way. My wife is absolutely exhausted. I am too, so if I sound a little bit tired or if I make some mistakes, I have a wonderful excuse this week. <laughs> I, I uh, Mr. Charles O'Gwen kind of uh, shook me up. He said, well, we've got to be <clears throat> sharp tools in God's hands and we don't want to be exhausted or anything like that or tired. And I thought, wow, I'm really tired. <laughs> but anyway, I thought I'd go ahead and speak because I'm not scheduled next week, I guess, and this would be a chance to tell you about the trip. A lot have been asking about it, and I know it will, or I trust it will be helpful to you and to the brethren to hear about the trip and about our brethren around the world. <clears throat> so if my voice is a little husky, I'm not sick at all. I just have lost sleep. And last night we had our worst night frankly, of a long time. We had one or two bad nights on the trip, but somehow our first night back we slept. But last night I woke up about 3.10 this morning, I guess, and couldn't sleep. And I went in the dressing room and was kind of straightening shirts around and thinking what I could do to just kind of do casual things and, and somehow keep going till I could go back to sleep. And then about 10 minutes later, my wife came in. She was awake and she couldn't go back to sleep. So she went downstairs and had a cup of tea and started reading. I never did come back up, and I tried to go lie down, and I just snoozed, but I couldn't sleep. So I guess I got about five hours last night, and I hope I don't put you to sleep this afternoon. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll do the best we can. But it was a long trip, and uh, I'm very grateful for God's help on the trip. And thank you very, very much for your prayers. And I'm sure that Mr. Ames and uh, Dr. Winnale and Mr. Crockett and the others who are traveling appreciate your prayers for all of us on the trips we've taken during the days of unleavened bread. Uh, my wife was a wonderful help on our trip, by the way, and it really made me realize how much I appreciate her because I sometimes don't catch on as quick as I used to or see signs or hear the announcements coming through the intercom, and she catches on to everything, and she kept me moving every step of the way, and yet she collapsed at the end, but, but uh, I'm still going. But she was a wonderful help all along the way. Very good to be back here yesterday and see our team, uh, all of you in the office. I got to say hello to most of you yesterday, uh, and I hope I could say hello to the rest of you today. But it was good to have lunch, and I got to visit with Mr. Apartian, uh, of course, and, and he's one of our top leaders and constantly helping, and he had his trip. I'm sure he'll want to tell you about down in the Caribbean. I guess he got to, though, a week ago or something, and uh, is constantly helping on our leadership team here, clear up at age... I better not give his age, but he's getting, he's getting toward 100, but not quite there yet. <laughs> not quite there yet. No, several more years. But he's a remarkable example. And then we have, of course, uh, Mr. Dick Ames, and uh, his, he had a wonderful trip out to the West Coast helping, and uh, Dr. Winnell, and of course, Dr. Winnell went all over Europe and uh, preached over there, as you heard. And Mr. and Mrs. Crockett went up to Ohio and then down to Birmingham and helped with the situations there and had a very fine trip as well. So we were all able to 
check in with each other yesterday, and I certainly appreciate the loyal help and the capacity of the leaders that we have in God's church here and God's headquarters very, very much. I enjoyed hearing Mr. Charles of Wynn's fine sermon, and uh, he sounds just like his daddy sometime, and I'm sure later on he'll sound even more like his daddy as time goes on. And Mr. Rod McNair, of course, is the other top man here, I guess you'd say, as far as just uh, work in, in the office he holds and helping out so much as well. Anyway, we're grateful to have the team that we do, plus Mr. Amon and uh, Mr. Bunjura and our other leaders here. This was one of the longest trips I've had in several decades, so I'll tell you a little bit about it and some of the lessons uh, perhaps I learned and can share with you about it. We stopped off overnight in Los Angeles. The way the trip fell, we had to get time ourselves just right between the Sabbaths and reach there in time for down in New Zealand for the Passover. And uh, so we stopped overnight in Los Angeles, and I was able to have a, a few hours with my son Jim and his family uh, on the way. And then that afternoon, late, we caught a, uh, an overnight flight to New Zealand. And it was about a 13-hour flight. You just fly and fly and fly and fly and fly, and then finally you're there. But we were met by Mr. and Mrs. Pinman about 4.30 or whatever it was the next morning and uh, had a very wonderful time with them. And hearing from not just Mr. Pinman, but from his wife and from some others, it made me really appreciate deeply what he's been doing and what his wife is as well. She's constantly having to work and send out. She, she takes care of the office primarily just in their home and is sending out letters and tapes and things all over uh, that part of the South Pacific. And he goes into these dangerous areas sometimes and he sleeps on grass mats and he goes to where there have been cannibals and no one has eaten him yet, I see. <laughs> but these men literally do take their lives in their hands, brethren. And it was inspiring to realize that and just be with them in person and see the love of the brethren for them. They are not dictators. They are loyal servants of Christ serving God's people around the world. I was talking to Dr. Winnale who brought me here. I just came together for a certain reason today. But uh, how, how wonderful it is that we have men like that. I remember sometimes men in our former association, young hotshot graduates from Ambassador College who were spoiled. They never had a real job before, and they took it easy, and they dressed real fancy and had Prince Valiant haircuts. And, and I guess you heard about our presidential contender, John Edwards. He was kind of having to apologize for $400 haircuts. $400 for a haircut. <clears throat> wow. <laughs> I've never even spent one-tenth that much or one-half. Well, maybe one-half of one-tenth. But anyway, uh, that, that some of these guys, it's unbelievable what they'll do. But our men have been tried and tested, and they're sacrificing and giving around the world, the vast majority. I don't know of anyone that's a slacker, but I deeply appreciate our ministry, and I hope that all of you do. Anyway, Mr. Penman's doing a great job down there, and we really appreciate what he's doing. We had 71 people then on the Sabbath uh, at Lake Topo. And that's where the uh, Holy Days have been held a couple times. A beautiful lake resort area right in the middle of the main island there, the South Island as it is. Uh, I know the North Island. Uh, in, uh, it get mixed up because it's closer to the cold part, but the cold part is south. Not the North Pole, but the South Pole. Anyway, it was a beautiful area, and we enjoyed seeing that very, very much and spending time with Mr. and Mrs. Penman. The Mr. and Mrs. Penman only have only one really huge problem 
uh, I'm sorry to report, he's sitting right there behind Mr. Crockett. <coughs> but anyway, <laughs> persecuting their son, Josh, who's here. I just happen to realize he's here hearing all this. But at any rate, I'm very grateful for them and what they're doing. Uh, then uh, we met the brethren, very enthusiastic and very dedicated group, a very warm, loving service. And the people really appreciate us when you go way off. They're so grateful for what all of us here are doing. They really are. And this work reaches around the world. And when you're out there and see it, it makes you appreciate the work that we're doing even more than you are here, uh, uh, than we see here among ourselves. I got to meet, my wife and I spent time talking to Miss, Mrs. Uh, Youngenberger, an older lady, just a little bit older than me, who lived about the time I did during the Second World War, except she was there under the Nazis in Holland. And she was hearing the German troops march outside her town and lived in fear at times and heard some of her friends were taken into concentration camps and she went through a lot of terrible times. And then when the Germans were finally chased out and before the Americans got there, they nearly starved to death. And she told the details of some of it. I don't remember all the details, but they were doing without food for quite a number of days. And finally, they heard some noises and the American troops were coming up and down every street in great big trucks, throwing whole boxes of food <laughs> to the people. And they were so grateful to get that food from the American troops over there. And we were feeding them. And help me realize that God brought these people all the way down. God brought his people from the Middle East over to the Northwest Europe and the British Isles. And then they came over here and to Canada and all the way down to New Zealand and Australia and places like that all over the earth. And God used Israel and especially Joseph who saved up the wheat way back then. He used those same people here at the time of the end to help other people over and over again, which we have done. We saved millions of people during the Second World War and the First World War, and the American troops went over there. My father fought under General Pershing over in France in the First World War, and we helped rescue the French and the Dutch and the Danes and others at that time. And now again, we did it in the Second World War. And God has used us and used the Israelitish people to help each other to preserve the balance of peace again and again. So Mrs. Youngenberger is a fan of the Americans. They kept her from starving to death. But after the war, Europe was desolated and she went all the way down as a young girl to Holland, I mean to New Zealand, and met a man and married and her husband died a few years ago, but she's up in her late 70s, very dedicated member of the Church of God down there from the nation against modern Zebulun, as we identify them as the probable descendants of the nation of Zebulun there living in Holland today. Then we know that uh, God has guided his people all over the world to serve him in those ways physically. And God has generally used the Israelitish nations to do his work, of course, because God started the work through ancient Israel and then in modern times, he used the Jewish people and others in the time of Jesus, I mean. And now in modern times, God has used the Josephites and the main single great nation of the earth with the greatest amount of freedom, freedom of the press, freedom of broadcasting, the ability to get out a message is the United States. And so God started his work in our age in the United States, the largest single Israelitish nation with the greatest freedom 
And so we're here because God raised up Herbert W. Armstrong to start the work which we are now carrying on in the same general way and certainly with the same doctrines and trying to build on that foundation that Christ laid through him and get this message of the coming kingdom of God, the government of God all over the world. And boy, if you travel, you see how much the world needs that. They're having all kinds of troubles in Australia. They've had all kinds of homosexual problems, problems with the Islamists down there. And they're having the worst drought in Australian history right now, raging forest fires and other kinds of things hitting them. As you know, down in Australia, their wheat crop has been desolated down there and it's getting worse and worse. And the beginnings of the tribulation are perhaps getting underway in certain parts of the world. I don't mean the tribulations began, but the pre-tribulation things are perhaps starting, maybe some of the final drought and the final disease epidemics have not yet started. But things are certainly getting underway in many parts of the world in that way to wake God's people up. Of course, in South Africa, why? Because they mistreated the blacks. Now it's payback time. And I've already told you, they're already having a pre-tribulation problem down there. It's a very terrible situation. And the whites are fleeing by the tens of thousands just to get out. Many of them are going to New Zealand and Australia and elsewhere. But at any rate, we're having these things happen. And it shows how God's purpose is being worked out. He's used us, and yet he rebukes and chastens every son he loves, and he's rebuking and chastening the Israelite people because we should have set a better example. Instead of that, we're wallowing in sin. We have our homosexuality. We have our abortion continuing. We have all this anti-God thing going on stronger and stronger all through our society, and we're setting a horrible example exporting all this stuff and this pornography and other things all over the world and it brings disgrace on our nation and on everything we stand for. So God Almighty has allowed these things to happen, and they're going to get much, much worse than we know before Christ comes. But at any rate, it was interesting to see that, and Christ is starting His work now among us, and now we're able to help those people down in New Zealand, Australia, and the Philippines with the very truth of God. Turn with me, if you would, brethren, to Psalm, if you would, to the book of Psalms, chapter 8. The book of Psalms, chapter 8. We have to think about the big picture and being way off on the other end of the world. I certainly did think about that quite often from time to time and certain scriptures came to mind more than others and this was one of them. He says in verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Brethren, here we are, little tiny ants, down on this little ball out in space we call the earth. We're so tiny, and when you're off or you're way up in an airplane in the fog and there's clouds and you realize your, your life is hanging on a thread, so to speak, humanly speaking, anything could happen, it helps you realize God is our Father. And God has made us in His image. And God is going to make us His full sons. And He's doing that. And in 57 and a half years now in God's work, I've seen how God has dealt with people all those years. I've seen big shots in the work come and go and come and go, as I've told you, some of the early evangelists in God's work. Some of them were very, very vain and they acted very important and strutting around and showing off and I could sense something was wrong, but they left. They fell away. They're gone. And if people aren't truly humble and really wanting God to use their lives, they are going to fall away. 
And we have to understand that and learn that lesson. Each of you has got to realize, I am nothing apart from God. But with God, He is going to make me His full son. I will be in His kingdom. I will be in His family. I will bear His name forever if I just yield to my Creator. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the awe of the Creator. And if we go way off and we see these things, we can begin to have more of that. And I hope it helped my perspective to see some of that again and perhaps see some of it more deeply than I had before. What is man that God is mindful of us? Or the son of man that he visits us and helps us and heals us and blesses us and delivers us and uses us again and again? For you've made him a little lower than the angels or for a little while lower. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. And his purpose, God wants us to be like he is someday. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. We're called to have rule, to have government. That's one reason we need to have the government in the church today. We're called to be kings and priests. And God wants us to humble ourselves, to be willing to work together as a team. We have men wanting to split off here and split off there and do their own thing. That's not God's way. What if people split off from the apostle Paul like that? What if they split off from the Apostle Peter like that way back when? You know what would have happened to them. But people do that today. They're very self-willed in our spoiled society. Most of them do not have that awe of God and realizing God has a church and through that church He is teaching us lessons of government, lessons to be kings and priests, lessons of loyalty. And He's testing us and testing us and testing us if we will humble ourselves and learn the lessons God wants us to learn. So he's given us dominion in his purpose. And in his plan, he's put all things under our feet eventually, of course, to be over the entire universe, as it shows in Hebrews chapter 2. He's put all things, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, that pass through the paths of the seas. O eternal, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The great God is guiding events, brethren, and we're living into the most exciting and yet the most traumatic times in human history. And things are going to speed up from now on. This work is going to speed up, and you will see that, not over the next five or ten years. Over the next two to four years, you're going to see that. And you're going to see world events speed up within the next two to four years as well. And certainly in five or ten years, in fact, it may be over. We don't know that. It may be 15 or 25 years, but I think it's more like 10 or 12 when it's all going to be over. And the tribulation will begin. And these things will then wind up with Christ coming after three and a half years of tribulation. So we want to understand that and realize that God has called us for a purpose. He says back here in chapter 7, Psalm 7, verse 9. Let's go back to uh, uh, verse uh, uh, 7. So the congregations of the people shall surround you for their sakes. Therefore, return on high. The eternal shall judge the people. God is going to come back and judge the peoples of this earth. Judge me, O eternal, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity within me. The Protestants say, just believe on the Lord. You don't have to have any integrity. But God's word does not say that. He says you're to keep the commandments and walk with God. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. For those of you who don't have it, I'm reading the New King James Version, which is frankly a lot better. 
I wish you'd all get that and start reading that. The New King James Version is the one Mr. Armstrong recommended, and it's the best single version in the English language. The righteous God tests the hearts and minds. He's working with us. He's testing us through all these things that happen in our lives, these things that are happening and going to happen in, in the world events. My defenses of God who saves the upright in heart. And then you read over in chapter 11, Psalm 11, in the eternal I put my trust. And boy, we've got to trust in God. When you're way off alone in strange lands, it helps you do that more. You've got to know that God is there. He's your Father. He will take care of you no matter what. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to the mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. You see, again, God has to take care of you. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The eternal is in his holy temple. The eternal's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test. There it is again. God is testing. He's watching. What will you do? Will you really surrender to God to live by every word of God so he can use you throughout all eternity? Will you try to be part of the team that Jesus Christ is preparing to do the work today and to rule the nations and the cities and the world tomorrow? Each of us, he's watching. Each of us, he's testing constantly. His eyelids test the sons of men. The eternal tests, he repeats that again, the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. So God is watching us. He's working with us. He's testing us constantly. And we have to be aware of that. Well, from New Zealand, my wife and I flew on to Australia and we landed in Melbourne and were met by Mr. and Mrs. Michael Gill. Many of you know him. He was a former officer, a non-commissioned officer in the British Navy and grew up in Great Britain. Now again, as an Ephraimite, he emigrated all the way down to Australia and married an Australian woman, and now is in the work in the land down under, a very dedicated man. And he's working very hard, very dedicated, and I certainly hope you'll pray for him and for Mr. Penman and all those men. It was good to talk to him about the work and about what's going on there in Australia, and he certainly felt very, very highly about Mr. Tyler, our director there, as did Mr. Penman, because Mr. Tyler is doing a fantastic job directing the work in all of the South Pacific areas there, and we appreciate that very, very much. But I preached there. We had 71 in uh, New Zealand. We had 72 in uh, Melbourne, Australia. Very nice crowd and very enthusiastic, very warm. A good visit there. And then after a, a day, just about one day, we flew on to uh, Sydney, and then we had a special midweek Bible study in Sydney. And uh, again, I was welcomed this time by Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Daryl Tanner. And Mr. Tanner and his wife, he's a former very successful businessman, but is willing to give up and to help and to serve, as I'll describe more later. Very dedicated couple. And they're helping out there in Sydney and showed us around. And then they flew down to the Philippines with us later, as I'll describe. But the Sydney church, we had a midweek, sort of a midweek Bible study type meeting that was put together a little later and more brief. So we just had 25 people there, <clears throat> but very dedicated. And then we flew on the next day to Adelaide, where the office is. And it's a smaller church, except the office moved there. They wouldn't have had near as many. But we had 54 people, which was very good for them. 
and a very fine uh, meeting, very dedicated people there. And they have a, an old building, and it kind of reminded me of what happened under Mr. Armstrong, how we took over the former stables of the Fowler estate, you know, of the McCormick, Deering, Fowler uh, clan, uh, that this estate was the first library building of Ambassador College, and the stables, which became the garage, became our administration building later. Later we called it the administration annex, but we kept putting it through various uh, improvements along the way, and that's what they're doing with an older building there. But it looks very good, and they're doing a very good job. And so now they have their own building, their own office building, which I say reminded me of the early headquarters building uh, of, the, of the work of God. So uh, it was, they did a fine job, and Mr. Tyler's doing a wonderful job down there. And he travels all over, and he goes into these backwoods areas where there have been cannibals and people are killed, and he goes off and all alone. And uh, so, anyway, he certainly needs your prayers. And everyone has spoken very, very highly of Mr. Tyler. And I deeply appreciate what, what he's doing. You'll get to see him in a few days as he comes in for the Council of Elders meeting. But the work down there is growing and growing. And when I was there a few years ago, why, we just had a, a, you know, a very small number of people in the church. I think it was around 100 people. Now they have 260 if everyone would come. So they're continuing to grow. They've more than doubled at least in the last five years. So I'm very grateful for the growth there. And in New Zealand, Mr. Penman had people stand up, as a matter of fact, and about half the entire congregation had come in brand new just in the last few years, most of them from the telecast. So our telecast is doing a lot of good. And in Australia, the same way. So we're very grateful for that. I got to meet the office staff, very dedicated group of people down there as well, men and women, and they're doing a wonderful job. Let's turn to John, the 15th chapter. John, now brethren, and chapter 15, and I'll repeat a little bit here of what Mr. O'Gwen wrote, but that's fine. Jesus said in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And brethren, if we don't bear fruit... If you and I don't have an impact on the world and we don't have an impact on others where we're really helping and accomplishing something, what are we here for? We're not just here all to call for our personal salvation. We're called to be part of the work of the great God of which Jesus Christ is the living head to get his message around the world. And every branch that bears fruit, even if we do bear fruit, sometimes he'll work with us. He rebukes and chastens every son he loves. He prunes as it is here in this more modern version. He prunes, as you prune a, a fig tree, you prune a grape uh, vine. He prunes each vine that it may bear more fruit. Even if you're bearing fruit, you'll have times where he will shake you up in various ways, and you'll say, well, I haven't been that bad. Well, maybe you haven't been that bad. <laughs> you know, I've had that, and I know I wasn't doing something horrible, but I wasn't producing as much, and God had a way of shaking me up so I could do better. He prunes that it may bear more fruit. He wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to overcome our own problems, but to have an impact on this world. And boy, this world needs what we have to give. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And that's right, brethren. If we don't study... The Bible, I don't mean read it, I mean study it and pray to God fervently. 
and fast before God and ask God to guide us and help us and clean us up and empower us and use us so we can have an impact on this world, we're not going to have very much of an impact. But God wants us to have it. We have to have Christ in it. So you neither can you have any uh, fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus said. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Now, we're not getting the millions. So we can't say we've got to have huge numbers because after his entire ministry, Jesus only had 120, remember, after three years of his ministry. God is not trying to save the world now. But nevertheless, we should have lives that are really being changed. And we do in this work. And of course, we do have hundreds of new people being baptized because of the telecast. And more and more are being affected, as Mr. Pyle reports from time to time, and others were having more prospective members more co-workers and we're having more donors just pouring into this work and we're having more people as I say prospective members write in for visits so I feel within just even one or two years you're going to see that growth take place just in numbers of people plus the spiritual growth I hope we can all have and we're very grateful for that so if you have Christ in you he bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing We can do nothing unless Jesus Christ is in us. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. I was talking to Dr. Winnale this morning coming in and I mentioned names. I won't mention names to you, but mention some of these hotshot ministers. And one guy I knew was a district superintendent and capable young man. I liked him, masculine but he got all filled with himself, so he began to wear open-neck sport shirts, not when he preached, fortunately, but elsewhere, and the chain over his hairy chest hanging down, and he was a young hotshot guy, and he cut the services down to about an hour and a half or whatever from two and a half hours as we used to have and preached 40-minute sermons and got the brethren out early, and then he would visit, they said, 20 or 30 minutes, not an hour. He didn't go around trying to help people. And then he would take off with his young friends. He had two or three special couples, his special buddies, and they'd go out to nightclubs and this and that. Well, later he had other problems, and then he died. He's dead. He's younger than me. And he actually later started a kind of a health, uh, well, I better not go into details, but he got into debt, and he had two great big guys, great big guys, built something, I guess, like Big Ben Whitfield, come and see him. And because he, the, he, the company he borrowed money to keep his enterprise going, uh, of course, he left, left the ministry by then. Uh, they turned out to be a company backed by the mafia. So they sent these two great big guys out. And he told me this himself, by the way. I liked him. He'd been one of my students, but he kind of began to fell up all the way. And they told him it would be, he, they said it would be very good for his health, that he, his health would be much better if he would come to Las Vegas, he and his wife, and she had a degree in, in uh, Homec, and, and they would help out there and help pay the debt. And they told him four or five different ways. They never said you're going to be killed. It said your, your health could be detrimental things could happen to your health if you don't. So they moved to Las Vegas. They got the message. And, of course, other things went wrong later. And I missed, I don't know what happened, but he died a few years ago, probably just in his mid-60s or early 60s. I don't know. But he had undoubtedly a very horrible time because he got very worldly. Another young hotshot guy was had the highest 
disfellowship record of any minister in the United States and the lowest visiting record of anyone, and I visited him, he was taking real good care of himself. And he always got these special, not $400 haircuts, but real special haircuts, had his special hairdresser, even had his nails trimmed by this female manicurist who would hold his hands and cut his nails and took real good care of George, you see. His name was not George, by the way, but I noticed things, he was getting very worldly. Well, eventually he kind of went insane in a sense and left, and then he died a few years ago. Again, both these guys were 10 or 12 years younger than me. So somehow God weeds things out. He tests us. He tests us. These people that don't walk with God, bad things start happening, and he will work with them and deal with them. And if they don't learn the lesson, well, they don't all die, of course, but, but uh, it, it doesn't work out well. But at any rate, we need to realize that God wants us to bring forth fruit. He says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. If you walk with God and you let Christ live in you and his words abide in you, you study this book, really study it to where you think like God thinks because you read this book so much, then you can ask because you'll know what to ask for and your prayers will be answered increasingly. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, <clears throat> so you will be my disciples. He wants us to bear much fruit. And brethren, we're going to do that over the next few years. We're already doing it. But things are underway right now, as you know, the charts they gave me since I came back. The number of co-workers has zoomed up. The number of prospective members, the number of donors and so forth. So God is letting us begin to have that kind of growth. And we're very grateful for that. We've got to have an even greater impact on this world. He wants the living church of God, the lively church of God, not the dead church, the living church, to have an impact. And with God's help, we will. And God will use us, as you will see. But we've got to be on our knees, and we've got to do it God's way. Well, then from Adelaide, we flew on to Manila, the Philippines, the capital of the Philippines, a massive city, and Mr. Osilios, their leading minister there, was telling us they have about 16 million people. Uh, there are several cities that vie for the biggest city in the world. Tokyo is normally regarded as the biggest. Some people say Manila is. Some people say Mexico City is. It depends on how you count it. Frankly, it depends on how far out you count the shanties and the shacks and all these coming people coming and going from the country. Each of these cities has a floating population on the edge of the cities, these workers that come and go but several of them, around 16, 18, or 20 million people. And Manila is massive. But we were able to stay in the uh, Intercontinental Hotel there, which we'd stayed with Rod McNair and his wife a few years ago, and we're very grateful for that. And uh, so we don't normally stay in the very best, but in the Philippines you should if you want to be have good water, good food, and not get sick, and so on. But we were staying right in the middle of town, and we're able to see the town a little bit. Mainly we were just with the brethren, though. And we had about, things always turn out 70. I think it was 71 in, in Taupo, New Zealand, 72 in, uh, in uh, uh, Melbourne. And as I remember, it was 172 then in uh, Manila. So it was a very fine group, very enthusiastic, and again, very dedicated men. And Mr. and Mrs. Tanner accompanied us there. Now, Mr. Osilius is a little older than the other elders, Tex Benitez died, uh, I think he was up in his 60s or whatever, but uh, his son Gideon Benitez is carrying on, 
and Mr. Kassing and some others, but the oldest man, very thoughtful man, Mr. Osirios, is carrying on, and I think he's really the spiritual leader. They're a very dedicated, very fine man, he and his wife, and I was able to have some talks with him, plus the other elders, and a dinner with them later on. So it was a very fine occasion, and the brethren, again, very, very enthusiastic. So we enjoyed being with them there and preaching to them, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Tanner were sent. I didn't ask for it, but sent, I guess, as, as helps, uh, and then they stayed on two whole weeks. They may still be there. And appreciate your help because they were going out with Mr. Osios and later with Gideon Benitez into the outback. I don't think they call it the outback there, but there are very dangerous areas where these guerrillas, these Marxist guerrillas are shooting people. So Mr. and Mrs. Tanner were willing to go and let put their lives on the line because that's what it amounts to when you go out in some of those places. So they need your prayers. And we have men like that that have, could have been or have been very successful as the Tanners were in the past living in a really beautiful home, and now they're willing to go out in places like that, knowing they might be shot very easily. Just one thing has to go wrong, but they're out there. So they need your prayers, as well as our elders and all our brethren in the Philippines. Let's turn now to Luke. These men have a great deal of dedication, brethren, and we need to as well back here. We're spoiled in the United States. We have everything. We take it easy. Turn to Luke chapter 14, if you would. Luke 14, I'm going to drink a little bit of this tea here. I hope my voice doesn't sound too high and whiny today. It doesn't sound too bad, I guess, Bill, does it? I better keep on anyway. <laughs> but uh, anyway, when you're all run down, that's the way it sounds. Luke 14, verse 25. Great multitudes went with Christ. Sometimes he had 10 or 25,000 people, including women and children. It was 5,000 men he fed beside the women and children on that one occasion. So he may have had 10 or 15,000 people here. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, in other words, want to come and be a Christian, and does not hate, and the Greek word, the commentaries tell us, does not mean hate in the sense we, it means love less. It's a comparative term, love less by comparison. His father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and his own life also. You've got to love your own life less. He cannot be my disciple. You've got to be willing to give up your life to be a true disciple of Christ. And some of these men and women out there are that way. They are that way. And we're spoiled here. We've got to get over it. We've got to get with it. Some of us need to sacrifice more than we have. And I hope that you will. I hope that I will even more. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So each of us has a cross to bear. We'll have trials and tests. But we've got to keep going. I'll soon be 77 and I want to keep going and die with my boots on. I don't care if I would wear out. It's all right. I'd rather die that way than some other way. And I know Mr. Partian is carrying clear on way up into his upper 80s, serving God, serving God, traveling, helping people. We've got to do that, brethren, and give our lives the best way we can to use our time, our talents, the strengths we have to serve our Creator, driving ourselves if necessary to do that job. So whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? Are you willing to give your life if necessary? 
some of the uh, people said, did you enjoy your vacation? Well, frankly, this wasn't a vacation. Nearly every place I stayed, I preached except in China. And you know, you have to preach every other day and then have ministers meetings and we have a board meeting and a ministers meeting in Australia and all the rest of it. It keeps you kind of busy and you're very tired at my age, especially. And I'd been to those places before. I know what the inside of an airplane looks like now. <laughs> Believe me, I know what the airports look like in most of these cities. So it wasn't a vacation, but it was a nice change that I'm grateful for the inspiration of being with those people around the world and I hope I was able to inspire them. But we've got to do the best we can wherever we are. So which of you intending to build a tower, you've got to sit down first. If you're going to build a skyscraper, you're going to build something big, count the cost. Are you going to be a Christian? Do you really want to be in God's kingdom? Are you willing to give your life? That's the point. Whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, well, you started out, you kept the Sabbath, but you lost your job, and then you dropped out of the church. Or you got some big job, you young hotshot minister, and it went to your head, and then you just went nuts, and you went out of the church, or whatever it is. These people have these problems. Well, what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000? Can you go up against an army twice as big as you are? Yes, absolutely you can. If you know that God is with you and if you know that you are with God. But you'd better know that you are with God and it's the kind of battle he wants you in. If that's the battle he wants you in, you better believe he will deliver you against an army twice your size or ten times your size, just like Gideon's army, as you know. So we've got to think about it that way. Or else while the other is still a great way off, then you surrender. You give in to the devil and you back off. So likewise, whoever does not forsake, you see, in your heart and mind, your intention, all that he has cannot be my disciple. And brethren, we have to be willing to do that. When I was in Ambassador College, I heard through my mother that Jimmy Porter and Ashby Grantham and Monty Taylor and all my friends were making more money than I was going to be making. I knew that. I wasn't stupid. But we came into the work of God and we didn't get our paychecks. And sometimes we had to miss meals and we barely escaped getting kicked out of our apartment sometimes. We would have to go to Vern Matson and beg for our checks so we could have something to eat or pay our rent because the work was in such terrible shape during the early 1950s. Then by the late 50s and early 60s, God began to bring in the money more and more and the work got bigger and bigger and we didn't have those problems. By that time, we had other kinds of problems. But we've got to be willing to go through those hard times, each one of us. And I hope that you will and I hope that I will. My trials are not over yet. I'll have other trials and so will you. But let's be willing to do it in our heart for sake. Know that it's not our life, it's God's life. Jesus Christ bought and paid for me. And I better know that my life is not my life. If you're converted, then Jesus Christ bought and paid for you and you do not belong to yourself. You belong to Christ. Your body belongs to Christ. Your mind belongs to Christ. Your time, your talents, your resources, your money, everything you have belongs to Christ. That doesn't mean you're supposed to give it all to Christ today. I'm not saying that, but you should be generous. And near the end of this age, well, some of us perhaps should sell our homes and we should do this and really sacrifice. Say, get it going, hit it, if God shows us that that's the very end. 
and be willing to give everything we have for the sake of the kingdom of God. Others doing other kinds of work. Why can't we do that? Why can't we have that kind of zeal? God is watching. He's testing each one of us. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? You see, God wants us to have that salt, that zest. It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the manure pile. But men throw it out. He who has ears, let him have ears to hear. So God wants us to get the point. We've got to really surrender to God. Some of these men and women in far from places are willing to do without. They're willing to put their lives on the line. And they're willing to do all kinds of things that are really hard and difficult and dangerous physically. So here we are in the soft lap of luxury in one of the most beautiful cities and safe cities in the whole world. And having traveled around the world several times, I really can say that. It's a very beautiful city coming back. It made me want to kiss the ground getting back to Charlotte. I thought, wow, <laughs> and this beautiful tree, tree-lined streets around here and all the things we have. We should be very thankful to God Almighty. But let's be sure we do give our lives to God and show that we're re- deeply appreciative and willing to drive ourselves and sacrifice ourselves to help others and to prepare for His kingdom. Notice what the Apostle Paul had to do in preparing for Christ's kingdom. And I want you to turn now with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 14. Here Paul uh, went on this evangelistic tour, as we might call it, in uh, Acts chapter 13 and 14. And he came to Lystra, as you'll see in the early verses of chapter 14. And that's when they stoned him and left him bleeding, left him for dead after having a bunch of rocks crush his skull. And then he rose up and went right on. And then uh, it says here, after coming down there, then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, this is verse 19, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Think of that, having big rocks crush your skull, you're bleeding, you're dizzy, you're left for dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, undoubtedly God intervened. Either he was dead or virtually dead. He rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. He kept right on. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. He came right back through whether he had just been stoned and left for dead. Right back through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples exhorting them to continue in the faith. Don't give up the faith. Walk with God. Trust God. God is alive and you will see that He's going to intervene and intervene powerfully in exactly the way He said in human affairs and it's beginning to happen big time. And as you watch and pray thoughtfully, you'll see that. And you'll see that the work of God is going to increase with power. And you'll see that as well. And so he told them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations. Yes, we're going to have trials and tests. He didn't say it would be easy. Through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church, so he appointed elders here and there all over. And I tell our men, we can't always wait for 10 years to ordain everybody. The apostle Paul ordained some people after just a few weeks or a few months If they were totally dedicated, uh, he had the advantage they were Jews. They'd already known the law since childhood, and we don't have that same advantage, of course. But he ordained elders in every church and prayed with fasting. They fasted as they ordained people and asked God's guidance. 
they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed, and then they came on back through these cities and sailed back to Antioch. That's Antioch in Syria. There's Antioch over in Asia Minor where he'd been, and the original Antioch, he started out from Antioch in Syria up north of Jerusalem. And he came back there, which was the Gentile headquarters, and when they had come together and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them. God had guided and used them in spite of Paul being virtually stoned to death and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And brethren, God is going to open the door of faith. He's already opened the door of faith to many thousands of people in the United States and Britain and the other Israelitish countries, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and the Philippines are being so close to the United States that we have several hundred brethren there. But we still need to reach Southeast Asia far more powerfully and we need to reach China. One out of every every three human beings live in either China or India. Think about that. Actually more, more than one out of every three human beings live in either China or India. China has 1.3 billion, with a B, human beings. India has 1.2 now. Just recently read that in The Economist. It used to be 1.1. So between the two, they have 2.5 billion people. The whole earth only has 6.5. So it's over, over one out of every three human beings in those two nations. We need to reach those nations. And again, they're having a lot of problems in the smaller cities. They're having drought and disease. That They're trying to make Shanghai and Beijing look good. But in many of the other cities, they're having riots increasingly and food shortages polluted water, all kinds of things. And they're going to collapse in some way. I don't know how. The final power is not going to be China, as the papers are telling us all the time. It's going to be a united Europe. And things can change very, very quickly. Very quickly. How do we know that? You say, how can you know that? Well, because the Bible says so. And I just tell you in authority, that's what's going to happen. China will. This is not China's century. First, it will be the century of the United States of Europe. But very quickly that will end and it will be the century of Jesus Christ, (laughs) the century of the kingdom of God. But at any rate, we're living into those times. So uh, God will use us to reach the Gentiles as well. And we should do that. And it's not going to be our major thrust, but we do need to do that. And God wants us to do that, as you know. And he tells us, in a sense, in the Bible, we're to go with all the nations. So after reaching or leaving the Philippines, my wife and I flew to Shanghai in China, and that's the largest city in China. It's reckoned to be about 16 billion people also, like uh, Manila. And Beijing, the capital, is only supposed to be about 13 million, a tiny little place, (laughs) bigger than New York, 13 million people, their capital. But we went in Shanghai, and we were there about two and a half days and I felt I'd been shanghai in Shanghai. I guess I didn't take as good care as I should. Some of our people have gone there and didn't get as sick as I did, but you heard I was sick and I appreciate your prayers. We were staying in the Hilton. Uh, Patrick set us up where we were able to stay in the Hilton Hotel in both uh, Shanghai and in and, uh, uh, Beijing. And I asked the uh, restaurant manager, uh, is it, and we got cut rates, by the way, because of our connections with the, the hotel chain, so we only paid for half the time. But at any rate, 
the uh, restaurant uh, assistant manager, I guess, a young Australian man, very nice looking and personable. I said, can I eat the salad? Is it safe? He said, oh, yeah, they wash it. Then we triple wash it here. You're fine. Well, that very night I began to have, of course, all kinds of problems. And it was just awful. My wife got sick, but I got more sick than she did because she didn't have the salad. So we were sick during most of the time in Shanghai. We kept moving and seeing things, but we felt very, very bad. And, uh, but at any rate, uh, it's a huge city, massive traffic jams everywhere you go, day and night, night and day, and the worst smog that I've ever experienced, about three times as bad as Los Angeles smog, and the water's polluted, so they all tell you, don't drink the water, don't breathe the air, <laughs> don't eat the vegetables, don't eat the fruits, and as long as you just stick to cooked foods and, you know, very, very careful drink just bottled water, I guess you're okay. But at any rate, it was a, it was a, we we got to see around at least one day, uh, taking trips all around uh, the tour, and got to see a number of the sites there. And they're building and building like crazy. As I wrote in my article in uh, the magazine several years ago, after visiting Berlin, the favorite uh, bird in Berlin was the crane. Well, that's the way it is in Shanghai now. It's the crane. They've got cranes everywhere because they're building these massive buildings. And Shanghai is the industrial capital so they have the smog jut not just from the automobiles but from their industry and their factories just belching out smoke they have a lot of coal fired uh heating and 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 uh, energy use as well using coal so the coals in the in the atmosphere it's a horrible place in that way but uh it's growing and they're going to have an impact on the world as you know the chinese yuan is getting more and more powerful and our dollar is going down the euro is going way up and our dollar has gone down. Our dollar has gone down almost 50% according to this morning's paper, in fact, right here, according to the euro. So this is going to continue. God will break the pride of our power. I think God put President Bush in, not that he's a bad guy, but he just doesn't get it as far as world events. God guides the rise and fall of nations and God put that man there and he... Being the Texas cowboy, he put us right in Afghanistan and then right in Iraq, and our military is being stretched too thin. Everything's coming apart. Our dollar's coming apart. The armaments that we used to have are being all used up. We're being set up for when the real trouble comes in a few years from the United Europe. We will be weakened. We won't be able to defend ourselves. At the same time, we will probably have disease epidemics and drought and everything else, as you will see. But these things are happening and God is using even China because of their massive, of course, export. They're the largest exporters and they are, of course, as you know, nearly everything you buy is made in China. My wife and I were out in Albuquerque several years ago to visit, I guess, Mr. and Mrs., uh, uh, our minister out there, uh, uh, Gilchrist. And I bought this uh, sort of an indent trinket or something in some shop out there, uh, American indent type trinket. And after I got back to the, their house or wherever, I turned it over. It said, made in China. I thought, oh, no. I thought I was buying an authentic Western something. It was made in China. Our Indians are living in China. No, they're not. <laughs> but that shows you what's happening. They're making almost everything we have. So uh, God is using them and going to use the U.S. of Europe as well to bring us down. So we need to realize that. Then we went on to Beijing and we were both feeling somewhat better and got to see there the Forbidden City and the Heavenly Temple, they call it, and Tiananmen Square where they had that terrible massacre back in 1989. 
and they say you're safe in China, you know, you're very safe because, frankly, there are policemen and soldiers everywhere. It seems like every 10 or 15 yards there's some guy in a uniform on. I'm not exaggerating. They're just all over the place. It's amazing. You're very safe, though. They don't have any money. Petty thieves are running around and robbers and rapists. They want the American dollar. They want the tourists. So you're safe as long as you say nothing bad about the government. Then you're very unsafe. <laughs> it's a different type of fear. But we don't go over there to say bad things about the government anyway. So we were okay. It's interesting to see a police state, though, a real police state in operation. But there is a great spiritual hunger. And I read a special supplement in the Economist magazine I bought along the way and other things I've read showing. And you can sort of sense it in the Chinese. They're big. They have material things in the big cities, not in the outback. But they have no purpose except just to be alive. They don't allow any real religion there and very little of any kind of religion. And there, there's an emptiness, an emptiness. Why are we here? What is life all about? They don't know that. They need our help. And with God's help and the use of the Internet and other things that we can do, we've got to get into India and into China and help those people know that there is a great God who's made us in His image and He wants us to be in His kingdom and His family someday and He's working out a purpose here below. And we're going to do that. We must do that there and all over the earth. Let's turn to John chapter 4, if you would, at this point. The Gospel of John chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading here in verse 34. So here, uh, this... uh, woman had come and talked to Jesus and then the disciples came and tried to get him to eat something and he said uh, I have food to eat of which you do not know in verse 32 therefore the disciples said has anyone brought him anything to eat and in verse 34 Jesus said my food the real food I have the thing that gives my life strength and meaning is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work and brethren I hope that can be your food I mean that. I'm not a hypocrite on that one point. I've had other problems, but that is the passion of my life and has been. Some of you may say, well, that's because you're the leader now. No, I was that way before. I was that way. Now, older friends realize that. That's been my passion. Elizabeth can remember that. That's the main thing I talked about ever since she's been born. And I may have overdone that and not been as attentive a father and as attentive at other things as much as I should. I remember Berkeley Nair used to say, Rod, all you talk about is the work and you're always driving yourself and what you need is a hobby. And he was trying to get me to collect stamps or do this or that. Well, my passion is the work of God. And I hope your passion can be in the right way. You won't all have to be full time at it, but we've got to have that passion. That's what Christ did. And we're to have Christ living his life in us. My food is to do the work of God and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. Billions of people out there don't know why they're alive and they're hungry. They're wondering what's going on. The third greatest cause of death, the third greatest, perhaps after accidents and all the, you know, maybe disease and everything else, the third greatest cause of death, think about this, not in old people, Young people that you'd think would be the happiest of all, the kids that are 15 to 19 years of age, just entering their full adulthood, 
I remember when I was 15 and 19 and attending junior high school dances and parties and high school football games and just exciting. The third largest cause of death is suicide. Suicide. And college students have a greater incidence of death percentage-wise than even kids that don't go to college, I've read. Why? What kind of education are they getting? They're not getting the right kind of education. They're getting an education that leaves God out. And they go off to these party schools and they get to drinking and smoking and marijuana and illicit sex and then they think, what's it all about? I've tried sex, I've tried drugs, I've tried liquor. Nothing makes me happy. I'm, I'm empty. What's going on? I'll just kill myself. And that's what it comes to. Our nation has a great spiritual hunger too. And we all need to be out reaching these people and helping them know there is a real purpose in life. So there's a harvest out there that's waiting. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages. Brethren, you will receive wages for all eternity if you give your life, your time, your talents, everything you have to God and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. God will give you wages, eternal life, blessings, all kinds of things forever, awesome things if you put his kingdom first and do the best you can in his work today and prepare for the world tomorrow with all your heart. Let's try to be the best tools that Christ can use. Mr. Gwynn said in his fine sermonette that we're to be sharp tools. Let's be those tools, the very best we can, that Christ can use us, stir us, help us get our time and talents in order, you know, to give ourselves to God and have an impact on this world every way we can. Turn to Revelation chapter 3 now, if you would. Revelation chapter 3. And that's a very basic scripture that you're familiar with. But remember back in the first few verses, he talks about the Sardis church, the era just before Mr. Armstrong came along and says, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. They had a name, but they didn't do a work. Then Mr. Armstrong came along and began to go through the doors of radio and the printing press and finally television and have an impact all over the world. And that's what we're doing. Then he describes in verse 7 the Philadelphia church that Mr. Armstrong raised up and we're continuing that work. We're living on over, you know that, into the Laodicean era. The vast majority of God's people, including many among us, are Laodicean. That means the people judge, the people decide, literally, Decia and Leo, the people decide. And they sort of have their social clubs and parties and they're interested in the things of this world more than the things of God. Nice people, but they don't have the zeal that Mr. Armstrong had and was typifying more the Philadelphia era. And I hope we'll keep that zeal, all of you. I want to stir you up. Some of you around the world hearing this may be Laodicean. I don't want to be a Laodicean. I don't think you do either. They didn't say they're horrible people. They're not great sinners. He just says one thing about them. When you read the last few verses of this chapter, lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth because you're neither cold nor hot. You're not out there freezing, knowing nothing, and you're not on fire. You're just sort of around. You're nice people, but you're not on fire. So I will spit you out of my mouth. God grant that you do not get spit out of Christ's mouth. So he says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, 
And let's be this attitude. Let's carry on this spirit. Verse 7, These things says he who is true and holy, he who has the key of David, and I've explained to you in a sermon a few weeks ago how that has everything to do with right government, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And of course, he's talking here about the open door. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. And as we saw earlier back in John or Acts 14, a door means an opportunity to go in and preach the truth. And no one can shut it. Some people say the work is over. Oh, is that so? How come we're having thousands of new people beginning to be writing us and calling us and hundreds already baptized? Brand new people. Brand new people. Hundreds of them never heard the name Herbert Armstrong. They didn't come in on his coattails. We're not putting him down. We're here because of him. We know that. We learned the truth through him. I did. But we're the ones Christ has continued to use. So the work is not over. And the door is not shut. And no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. You better believe we have a little strength. We are the little flock. And have kept my word. We must keep God's word and not water it down. And have not denied my name, my authority. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, that's these people who claim to be God's people, outsiders, not talking about the Laodiceans here necessarily, but just false Christians, who say they're Jews and are not but lie, indeed I will make them, that is these false Christians out in the world, come and worship before your feet and to know that I've loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. And brethren, we have persevered right on over into the Laodicean era and yet we're willing to be Philadelphian even though we're not the biggest. And it's not the easiest to be the Philadelphian when we're surrounded by the watered-down attitude of the society and the Laodiceans, and so on. We're willing to do that. We're willing to carry on the work Christ began through Herbert and Loma Armstrong so many years ago, and to keep that work going around the world. We're persevering, and God helped you to do that, because you've kept my command to persevere. God says this, I will keep you from the hour of trial. God will protect you, my brethren, and you brethren around the world hearing this. He will protect you from the great tribulation if you do that which shall come upon the whole world. This trial or tribulation is not some little one. It's the big one, obviously. The great tribulation, which shall come upon the whole world to test those. Yes, he tests us all, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Now, quickly doesn't mean the next few minutes, but in God's time of millions of years, And now 6,000 years of human experience, we're certainly getting down toward the midnight hour. That's obviously. He's coming very quickly. And Christ's feet will probably be on this earth in less than 20 years. That's my opinion. That's not the Bible now. That's first married at 3, (laughs) 4. I want you to know that. But I feel it will be in less than 20 years very strongly. I come quickly. Hold fast that you have that no one take your crown. So we have got to hold fast. He who overcomes, don't just sit there, brethren, overcome. Give your life to God. Count the cost. Go all out. Be the salt of the earth. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar, a strong support. You see, a pillar. And he's preparing us to be the strong support forever in the very family of God, in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. That may be a little hint that we had to leave. 
We had to come out of the church that apostatized and fell away, and it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun for me. I had to come out before most of you did, not because I was smarter, but because I was right there in the middle of it and saw it and knew it since I taught these guys. I was not over-impressed by them when they started to turn aside. I could see it perhaps a little more quickly and easily. Some people said to me, oh, Mr. So-and-so, and I thought, yeah, that kid was in my freshman Bible class and <laughs> acted smart. I, I wasn't overly impressed with uh, Junior uh, and the others of that, of that type. So I could see what was going on, perhaps a little bit more quickly. We had to go out, but you should go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. He's going to give us titles, power, authority forever which shall come down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. That name will represent, no doubt, our authority, our position in Christ's government for all eternity. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's persevere, brethren. Let's persevere to the very end. And let's keep on this Philadelphia spirit. Turn now, if you would, back to Romans, the eighth chapter. Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, too many of our people live according to the flesh. Some of you young people in the church still run around and drink heavily, and you carry on, and you just party. That's not right. You're not going to make it into God's kingdom that way. Some older people have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. That's all they talk about, just physical things, carnal things. For those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. It leads to the second death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal, that doesn't mean some terrible mind. You don't have to be an Adolf Hitler to be a, a carnal person. It just means physical. You know, we, some of us who like Mexican food, we eat chili con carne. Chili con carne, con is with, and carne is meat. You see, it means fleshly, meaty, just a normal physical mind. Because the physical mind is enmity against God. It just naturally resents the idea of his God telling it what to do. The carnal mind doesn't like that kind of God. For it is not subject to the law of God. Talk, talk, talk to your Protestant ministers about that one. They don't like this scripture. The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It doesn't like God's law. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. You have to have Christ in you, or you're, you're not Christ at all. You're not a Christian. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, and the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit. He will raise you up supernaturally when the time comes at that last trump. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. We're not supposed to live the fleshly lives, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit, by God's Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, put those to death, you will live. For as many as are led by, not as many as sit in church and do nothing, 
but as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You've got to be led by that Spirit. For you did not receive the Spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the Spirit of sonship. This is one case where the New International Version and others translated correctly. The King James has adoption. We're not adopted. The Greek word means make a son, so you could translate it adoption, but it's also susceptible to the meaning to make a son, you see, and the spirit of sonship, which is obviously more accurate when you understand all the rest of the Bible. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. The spirit of sonship. And so that's what God's spirit is. Uh to whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. We know God in a very close, personal way. He's real to us. Daddy, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. God's Holy Spirit bears witness. We have His help. We sense that outside help that comes in that we never had before if we're really converted, that we're children of God. And if children then heirs, Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We're not going to have a lesser reward. We're going to be rewarded the same kind of reward He's rewarded with. Eternal life, a glorified spirit body, power over kings, over, over whole nations. But Christ will be king of kings. He will be by far the greatest king. But we will have a similar reward. Joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, have we had trials and tests? Yes. Are we going to have more trials and tests before we finish our Christian lives, before we finish the work? Yes. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Not to us from the top of the mountain somewhere, but in us when we are born of God. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. It's like the whole creation is suffering. The water's turning bad. The air's turning bad. Plants are dying. Whole species of insects and animals are dying off. Things are going bad all over the world. We know that. It's the indication that the Creator has to intervene in His creation before it's too late. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That liberty, when we are free from this flesh, we're free from Satan the devil, we're free from all the handicaps that we now face. We will be spirit beings in the very family of God. So we're grateful for that. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors until uh, with birth pangs. It's as though the nations are suffering. They're suffering in China. You can sense the emptiness and the rotten cities and the rotten water and traffic and air and everything. Dust and people jammed together. Miserable. All over India, so many people still starving to death and vast disease epidemics sweeping across nations like Bangladesh and vast nations in Africa where up to one-third of the population is dying of AIDS. Either they have died or are dying now of either AIDS or HIV, the precursor of AIDS. Whole nations are being wiped out because of the sins of man in these various nations. The creation groans with birth pangs. And not only they, but, also, but we also who have the first fruit of the Spirit, 
Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We cry out. We hope. We pray. We prepare for that spirit body. For we are saved in this hope, but hope is seen that is not hope. We don't have it yet. We've got to hope. So he says we, in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. All things work to good, to, for good if we really love God, brethren. For whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn of many brethren. Jesus Christ is to have full brothers. He's the firstborn of many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified in his plan and purpose, and whom he justified, he glorified. It's already planned that we will be spirit beings, glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's the lesson we need to learn. We have a father if we're converted. Our father is the great God of all the universe. And wherever we go, whatever we do, we never need to forget that. We must not forget that. We're the sons of the great God. We're the ambassadors of that great God to have an impact on this whole world. God help us to get that calling, to get that zeal, to get that understanding in our minds and fulfill the calling for which God has called us to be the ambassadors to this whole world and prepare for the glorious kingdom of God. And if you do that, and if you go all out, if you let God be first in your life, and you have that zeal, then you will be rewarded with eternal life. And brethren, the reward you can have, the peace of mind, the joy, the sense of accomplishment as a spirit being, helping create whole new societies, helping the starving millions of this world, and later perhaps even in other planets, and the kingdom of God, the government of God, the family of God, is awesome. We can't fully realize what God has in mind because we are made to be full sons of God and to interact. We are going to interact with Christ and with God throughout all eternity as members of their family, as members of their kingdom. And so as we think about the nations around the world, as we think about our brethren around the world and the trials they're going through, pray for them, love them, serve them, But keep our minds on the big picture. We are God's people. We are God's servants. We're called for a purpose. Let's fulfill that purpose with all our hearts.